Welcome to the Black Duck Revival Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Wilkins. I'm excited to have you join me as I speak with a fascinating collection of folks, all of whom have in common that they've made a way for themselves by finding an intersection between thoughtful consideration and the tactile work of getting their hands dirty. This is an examination of intention, capability, and craft. It's where philosophy meets the blue-collar work ethic and where I find real value. Hey folks, on this episode of the Black Duck Revival podcast, I'm joined by California-based wildlife photographer and uh, waterfowl biologist, Gary Kramer. Gary was at Black Duck Revival this season to teach a one-on-one waterfowl photography course with a visual artist who uh, came up. He's originally based in Mississippi. And then we were joined by some other clients and we rolled that into our regularly scheduled programming in the form of a weekend speckle belly goose hunt. Gary was a pleasure to have in camp. He was a wealth of knowledge about waterfowl biology, scientifically uh, based information for a change, not just uh, old wives tales and uh, you know the pontification of people that aren't seeing birds. That seems to be so much of what duck hunting and goose hunting is. Uh, he was also a trove of stories garnered from a lifetime, almost 50 years of traveling the world and photographing wildlife and working in the field of wildlife biology, mostly in California. And we had a conversation at the end of this weekend. It was just Gary and I left there at camp and it was a conversation I so appreciated and so enjoyed. And I think you will too. So please soak it in, absorb, listen to this episode of the Black Duck Revival podcast with Gary Kramer. Hey, welcome back to the podcast, folks. I am back up at Black Duck Revival as I have been and will be for the remainder of waterfowl season. I'm sitting at the old table in the old church pews, and this time I'm joined by Gary Kramer. Gary is a wildlife biologist. He's a renowned waterfowl and wildlife photographer. He's a world traveler, and he's been down here for when three day three day four. Uh, he taught a photography class to a, a private photography class on uh, waterfowl photography. We've done some hunting. We've eaten a bunch of meals. We've hung out. We've talked. It's been fantastic. The uh, the rest of the the clients have all kind of gone their separate ways, try to get back to their families. And so we're, we've got an evening to ourselves here and it's a perfect opportunity to do this podcast. Gary, welcome. And thank you very much. All right. Well, thanks a lot. I appreciate being here. We had so far a great time, as you said, did a little hunting photography. And of course you're well known for your fine food. Oh, well, thank you very much, Gary. Uh, so, you know, I've been struck by the fact that I mean, you've, we've essentially talked about the fact that you've got 45, 50 years in this industry. You've got, you had a full career as a wildlife biologist. You were well-known as a wildlife photographer at that point. And then when you retired, you started doing this full-time. Uh, you just released a book, and we're going to talk about that and hear some stories about some of these like crazy traveling expeditions you've gone on. But if we could, let's kind of start back. 
you're from California. You still live there now, but uh, I know that you're a war veteran. You're in the Marines. Uh, like we said, you've got a master's in uh, wildlife biology. So, like, just how did it start, Gary? You know, you, you were born, you were in California, and then what happened? Well, you know, I, I was actually born and raised right near L.A. airport, which is an odd place to end up being a, a biologist and refuge manager and so on. But I always had an interest in the outdoors. My dad didn't hunt uh, or fish. My grandfather fished. So if you think about it, you live in L.A., the only wilderness is the ocean. Hmm. There isn't any other. So my grandfather was a big ocean fisherman. So when I was a little kid, I started fishing with him in the ocean and kind of got that whole interest in, in, the, in, the, in the fishing culture. And then as soon as I could drive a car, I hooked up with a couple of buddies and said, hey, you know, let's go out in the desert and shoot something. And then we, that quickly changed from just going out and shooting a, a jackrabbit to... I always found waterfowl, for some reason, among all the birds, pretty intriguing to me. And if you start looking, even in Southern California, there are some public hunting areas that are operated by both the state and the feds that, you know, were within oh, a two to four hour drive. So you, we get up at oh, dark 30, drive to these public areas and, uh, and started hunting ducks and kind of got into that whole thing and enjoyed it. And of course, I was of the age that Vietnam came along and I didn't have a lot of choices, and I didn't want to get drafted, so I didn't join the Marines. I joined the Navy. Oh, okay. I apologize. Yeah, so I spent a couple years in the Navy during the, <clears throat> during the Vietnam uh, situation and got out and said, you know, and I had done no college prior to going in the service, but now I got the GI Bill, right, mm -hmm. you know, can pay for it, and I said, what do I want to do with my life? And I just gravitated towards that fishing, outdoor hunting kind of a thing and I started to look at college catalogs right before I got out and I discovered that there was actually a degree in a number of the the colleges and universities <clears throat> in either wildlife biology or wildlife management kind of the same thing pretty much so what I ended up doing was getting out of the out of the military went to um, community college for a couple of years because I barely made it through high school <laughs> and I'm right then, there with you man <laughs> so then a couple years of that, then I transferred to Humboldt State in Northwestern California. And I ended up getting a, a bachelor's degree in wildlife management from Humboldt State. And then I, I, at that point, you know, I had already been in the military and I was a little bit older and there was a bunch of vets that were there. And I kind of, I wasn't done with school. I said, I need to get more knowledge. So I enrolled in the master's program and ended up picking a, a topic which I had been hunting in Baja California and Mexico before and hunting for a Pacific or black brand. And I did a little bit of research and found out that guess what? There's been zero research done on brand in Mexico, not one single study. And at that point I spoke a little bit of Spanish, not much, but I kind of took a leap of faith and said, you know, I'm going to do something off the wall. Went to my professor and said, I want to go down to Mexico, live there for a couple of winters study these birds <clears throat> and he said uh are you sure and i said yeah so he said hey i'll support you all the way so i ended up going down to san Quentin bay where i did a study for one full winter from uh from the first of november to the first of april and then a shorter period of time the second and basically uh documented what the hunting harvest was there that was unknown <clears throat> what their food habits were, which was eelgrass, but 
you know, mapped the eelgrass beds there, uh, looked at honey mortality, crippling loss, and then, but the main part of it was an ecological study to where I was able to establish the flight time from Alaska to Baja, California. And the way it worked out was is that when I was, before I went down there, I was sitting home one day and uh, got a call from my major professor. He said, hey, there's a refuge manager from Alaska here in my office, and he heard that you were going to go down there and do the study on Brant, which is a small goose that migrates from Alaska to Mexico, where most of the population winters. So I went down there, and he said, well... Well, this, just interject, this is purely a Pacific flyaway bird, right? No, there's actually, they're found both on the Pacific and Atlantic flyaway. Okay. But there are two different subspecies of Brant. There's the black or Pacific Brant, and there's the Atlantic or the light-bellied Brant on the East Coast. Plus, there's a third one that goes to Europe called the dark-bellied or Russian Brant. So there's three subspecies of Brant. Okay. But the one I worked on was the, the black or Pacific. Gotcha. So this guy tells me that he has been studying these birds, and when they, they, what happens to Brand is that they, they nest in uh, the North Slope, the Yukon, Kuskokwim Delta, and parts of Siberia. But the entire population goes to Eisenbeck Lagoon, which is a, um, a national wildlife refuge on the Alaska Peninsula. And the entire population stages there. At that time, let's just call it, 120,000 birds. So the whole population is there at one, one time. They spend about six weeks or more there eating eelgrass, getting fat for the fall migration. And then when they leave, generally they leave in mass. So one day you got 100,000 brant. Next day, 95% of them fly up, head south. So it's this giant mass of birds all at once. And if you look back into the 70s, this was 70... Six, seventy-five, seventy-six. that was the height of the Cold War, right? Mm -hmm. And there was an early warning dew station at Eisenbeck Lagoon, which is an Air Force radar station. And this refuge manager had been working with the Air Force, and they can track this mass of birds when they leave. Just because it was so big and all So big, once. it's a big giant blip on the screen. Mm -hmm. So he had this all worked out. He said, okay, you're going to be in Mexico. And this is the years before there was any radio telemetry. So there's no way to know. Like today, you put a radio on them, right? And then you can track it with a satellite. Yeah. And it's real time, and you can, yeah, there they go. But back in the 70s, that didn't exist. So we worked out a deal. He said, well, how can I contact when you're in Mexico? Well, okay, 1976, 75, the only communication I had was a, was a telegram. There was no cell phones, no pay phones, no anything. And it was a telegraph office, a Western Union office, at the pharmacy in town, little, little fishing village. So he said, when they leave, I will send you a telegram. One more freeze frame. When we talk about telegram, there's probably people listening to this podcast that don't know what that is. That's like that, the, like Morse code, sending Morse code through the lines, right? And yeah, someone it, has to decipher it on the other side. Well, I think it was, at that time, it might have been more sophisticated, but I got a printout, a ticker tape. Mm -hmm. A ticker tape from them. They handed it to me at the, when the time came. So this is like, we're talking really old school. Okay, so it's not, it's not like back in cowboy days where there's like no, a guy no, at no, the station. No, but no, no. Yeah, it's being sent through like phone lines, yeah, right? Yeah, it's being sent through phone lines, and then you get it, and you get it. It isn't, a, it isn't actually a, you know, a Morse code thing, but you get a message. 
Yeah. And the message is sent through a phone line, but that was the only way. I couldn't pick up a phone, and the guy couldn't call me. Mm-hmm. You know, there was no internet, whatever, no pay phones. It went to the pharmacy that happened to have the phone company was there, and I got the notification. But, yeah. it, but it was Western Union, like a telegram. Mm-hmm. So anyways, so what happens is, is that this generally happens, let's just say, around November 1st. So I go out on the, I'm there at the end of October, I go out on the bay, which is San Quentin Bay, and I set up these observation stations where I could actually do a count of the birds on the bay. First day I go out, count, no, no brand, zero. Second day I go out, zero. Third day I go out, there's eight. Fourth day I go out, there's eight. Then I go, and every day I'm going into town to check my messages. And so it's the same eight birds that are just hanging there. Same eight birds. Zero birds, eight birds for a few days. So that went on for three or four days. I go in and I get the info. And it says, Brant migration, Brant exodus of major proportions, 20 hundred hours on this particular day. Be on the lookout. So I go back the next day, eight birds. Then I go out the next day. And after what amounted to 60 hours has elapsed from the time I knew they left, Mm -hmm. I went out at sunrise, 8,000 brand. Wow. So what we calculated was is that to fly the 3,000 miles from Eisenbeck Lagoon to San Quentin Bay in 60 hours, and it could have been shorter because I can only go out at sunrise. They they might have arrived at night. I don't Mm -hmm. know that. They would have had to fly 50 miles an hour of sustained speed without stopping. And that was like, first time that was like blew people away. Yeah. That has been substantiated with radio telemetry a whole bunch of times since. And it still stands today. So that was like my, that was the moment, you know, in my career that was like. You uh, did, like you entered the lexicon. Yeah, right. Of, of waterfowl biology. Yeah, and, you know, and I'm a, I'm a grad student, and, you know, I'm down in Mexico doing my thing, and all this stuff happens. And that really made a big difference in my career all along because then as part of what eventually, as, as I got into the Fish and Wildlife Service, and that didn't hurt probably getting in, mm-hmm. was the fact that I, I actually had, a, had duties as assigned, which was to be a liaison with the Mexican government for migratory bird matters. So for my entire 26 career, 26 year career, I did work with Mexico on and on and on, which was really cool for me. And you became fluent in Spanish. Well, I'm about fluent, but I can speak Spanish. Yeah, you can get around. Uh, absolutely. Well, I was forced to. I got I went down there living for 5 6 months. It's like sink or swim. Yeah, yeah. It you know what's kind of amazing about that to me is that ultimately that was two people Two people figure that out just by going out and watching. So, like, you're going out. Are you? Do you have like binoculars, a spotting scope? Or? Yeah, yeah. What we did, what I did, is that I set up a situation to where I set twelve observation stations that were on kind of on high points around the bay because mm-hmm. there's some bluffs around it. And then I would actually, you can only count them at low tide too, because that's when they feed, and that's when they don't move much, and that's when there's no hunting. So they're on the, they're walking around eating eelgrass. And I divided the bay into 12 sections, and then I would literally count that sections. I'd get, a, I'd get a tripod with a spotting scope, climb up on the top of my pickup truck, and that was my observation, looking into these 12 pie-shaped 
cuts of the bay and then mm -hmm. you add all that all them up and that's how i got my counts and i did it consistent for six months so you've like you've done this you've become bona fide right right and then you enter into like fish and wildlife management for right. how long you said more than 30 26 26 so how did that so then you move into that and and we were just talking about this before we recorded but you ended up managing six refuges well what what happened is is that initially at, at when i got out of college uh the fish and wildlife service wasn't hiring so i took a job with the bureau of land management in nevada mm -hmm. for about a year and i was a wildlife biologist wildlife biologist with them but you know that wasn't my interest was always waterfowl and ducks and stuff like that right yeah so as soon as i had a year in which is what you have to do then i started to apply for fish and wildlife service and it so happened that I got lucky in my timing is that a number of biologist jobs opened that were brand new in the Fish and Wildlife Service. So I applied for several. And the one I got was the wildlife biologist for Kern National Wildlife Refuge near Bakersfield, California. And, you know, it was a place that I had actually hunted mm. as a teenager. So I knew it. Yeah. Knew it well. And I got hired on. I worked there for three and a half years as a, as a <clears throat> wildlife biologist. But... It was mostly duck work. You know, I flew aerial surveys. We, we banded waterfowl. We're working with habitat. So it really was, that's kind of when I say the words of wildlife biologist, which was the actual job title, and the fact of, of waterfowl biologist kind of took over. I mean, that isn't officially what it is, but that's what I did. After three and a half years there, and then I moved to San Luis National Wildlife Refuge, which is further up in California, further north. And there I worked... I was another wildlife biologist, but I worked primarily on private lands. Uh, there's a huge duck club area there called the Grasslands. Okay. And we had a conservation easement program to where we were actually paying money to the duck clubs to keep that habitat, not develop it in perpetuity. It had to stay in, in wetlands forever. You couldn't build a parking lot on it. Nobody else could buy it. Mm -hmm. So it was about half that kind of a job. And then what I would do is that my real job was is taking those guys and convincing them to take part of that money and improve their habitat. So it was a real habitat-based job. So I went out to the duck clubs and talked to the guys and worked with them and improved the habitat so that the habitat was higher quality. And now they had a little bit of money to do that with. And so then, and the, and the benefit is that they improve habitat. They end up with more birds. They have better hunts. But you're also... Like in the scheme, in the scope, in the scheme of it, you're providing good habitat for a, a bunch of birds that aren't going to get hunted. Yeah, exactly. And the thing is, and one of the things, a real interesting thing is, for instance, when I first got there, traditionally the last day of the hunting season, they would pull all the boards from the water control structures and drain the water off. Oh, really? Okay, that was tradition. Just think about it. You're done duck hunting. Yeah, get rid of the water. Get rid of the water. But the fact remains is, is that research has shown that that waterfowl, in particular the females, need that wetland from the end of duck season through the spring where they shift their diet in the case they're eating rice, for instance. Mm -hmm. They shift to, to mostly invertebrates, high protein, to build energy reserves for breeding. So they need that habitat, frankly, worse February, March, April, or at least equal as they do in the rest of the year, to increase their breeding success. So that what I did, I go to these guys and say, hey, Here's what, what you need to do. Here's why you do it. Here's how it's going to benefit you. And I was able to make some changes in the way they manage <clears throat> that habitat. 
So it was a lot of that kind of stuff. Plus, they grew a lot more food, and it provided a lot of months, you know, another 90 days of habitat for those birds, which, in, you know, helps the population as a whole. So it worked out. I mean, it was, it's beneficial for, for the birds, for the, for the hunters, and, and for just, you know, general waterfowl management. So you're moving through these biology jobs. You're staying... Like it's it's always staying focused on waterfowl. Right. When did the photography and the writing come into it? Well, what happened is that after I left San Luis Refuge as the biologist there, I kind of made the leap of faith and I became a refuge manager. Traditionally, the the pathway to that is is as an assistant manager first, and then you go to the manager. Well, I was fortunate in the fact that I made the leap and I didn't have to do the assistant manager thing. I went right to a management position. These leaps of faith seem like they're a theme in your life. Well, whatever. You know, it happens. It keeps happening. It's just like the book I ended up with. That's the culmination of kind of all this. And it's just taking another chance, right? Yeah. So anyways, I, then I became the manager of Salton Sea National Wildlife Refuge in extreme southeastern California in the desert. Again, primarily waterfowl refuge, although there's a lot of other species there. I ran that operation, plus we also ran an operation in San Diego Bay, which was, all, which was mostly uh, endangered species, not waterfowl. And then we ran one in the, in the desert, which was set up for an endangered lizard, actually. So I had a real varied job yeah. there. Did that for five and a half years. And during the interim of that, they can't, have you ever heard of this, the joint venture concept that they have a Mississippi joint venture, uh, Central Valley, all around the country, where they, they take all these different groups of people interested in, in a geographic area and try to do good things for waterfowl? I guess I haven't heard of that. Yeah. No. There's one of the Mississippi uh, Flyway. There's, there's a number of them. But the Central Valley joint venture was one of the first. And I got asked to be the Fish and Wildlife Service, the, 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 the joint venture coordinator. And it was a deal to where they said, you know, we'd love you to do this. We'll give you a promotion. Yeah. yeah, But but you got to move to Sacramento. And I said, you know, if I do that, I'm out of the field, you know, working out of an office. And I'd really like to to play this out. Plus, I knew that Sacramento Refuge, Sacramento National Wildlife Refuge in Northern California, which is one of the larger complexes in the country, winter two million ducks and half to three million uh, half to three quarter million geese i mean it's a huge waterfowl operation that it was going to come open because i knew the manager was retiring so i said you know this joint venture job job is flattering but i'm going to pass so the guy calls me back a week later and says would you take it as a 90-day collateral duty assignment so i said yeah i'll do that i'll help you out well ended up i did it for a year and a half year and three months is a collateral duty. But it was, there was a lot of folks that we worked with and I got a lot of exposure in Washington, D.C. for the Fish and Wildlife Service with Ducks Unlimited, California Mm -hmm. Waterfowl, Audubon, on and on and on. Sacramento Refuge came open. I applied for it. And probably because I had that other job, I got selected for Sacramento, which was really kind of my dream job, really. Okay. I ended up doing that for 10 and a half years. Then I took an early out, but along the way, about salt and sea time, I started to, to go, well, I've been on a lot of fishing and hunting trips, and I started to write a few articles. Actually, it was before that. Um, 
And I would send it to outdoor magazines, and pretty soon they started to publish a couple of them. I mean, it's like, if you really look at sending articles to, to magazines, you just send them blind, about 95% get, you know, in the trash can back in those days. Got a couple published, and I go, well, this is a way that maybe I can augment, you know, my hobbies were still fishing and hunting, right? Mm -hmm. But I'd see ducks every day I wanted, on the weekends, what do I do? You know, I go shoot them. And uh, to offset, you know, the family income, not, you know, offset my hobby with a little bit of extra income that doesn't take away from the family income, mm -hmm. right? And that just slowly increased. And then, and then I found out that if I could sell a package that had the text and the photos, it was much more likely to sell than if I just send them words because they want the package. It makes it easy on the editor, right? So I started taking photos and eventually bought better equipment. And by the time I got to Salton Sea was when I bought the first serious 500-millimeter lens, and then, then it just kind of took off. The writing part I still do plenty of. You know, I've done a bunch of books. But the photography has really been kind of my passion. I would do that anyways. I just happened to be lucky and get paid for it. So that's how the photo thing came in. And then this early out was showed up which was you had to have 25 years of service in any age. And I had 26 years of service. So I said, you know, I think I'm going to pull the plug and do this photo writing full-time. And I got a retirement check two weeks later. So it wasn't a bad deal. Yeah, that's pretty sweet. Yeah. So that's kind of how it, that's, that's, the, that's the history of it a little bit. So I'm, I'm going to revisit something real quick and then i want to talk about this book that uh i mean frankly gary like fucking gorgeous book man like gorgeous substantial heavy it's it's like i don't know if, if folks i grew up going to libraries and there's you know there's like books you know i grew up and it was still a situation where i felt like it was a status symbol that we had a set of encyclopedias at my house and i remember like thumbing through those and looking and like you're discovering right right and that's what this book is uh but i want to step back before we get to that and and hopefully explain some of how that book got uh put together but like we've talked a couple times about you keep taking these leaps of faith in your life right and they pan out and they've panned out big for you uh like what made you think that those things would work out because so many people are like crippled with being indecisive and not believing that they can make something big happen. And I've, I've really been struck by a lot of the people I'm talking to. They all kind of have that quality in common. So like, why did you believe in yourself? I guess, uh, just basically. Yeah, that That's a real hard one, but I tell you what, there was a turning point. I would n never say this is just a fact. Prior to going in the Navy, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I was a pretty bad student in high school. I was more interested in cars and girls than anything else, right? Yeah. But I went in the Navy, and I went to a 12-week to a school, um, you know, what they call an A school to learn a trade, right? And I kind of, before that, I, I don't think I really believed in myself very much, but the first, and they give you a test every Friday, right? Okay. And the first test came along, and I got the highest grade in the class. And I'm going, what's this about? In the second week, I got the highest grade in the class. And I go, and then in the, in the military, they give you a lot of accolades when you do good. 
So it was like you get the pat on the back, you get your name, you get you don't have to you get less duty or something. You get you get a pat on the back, and they encourage that. Well, by about the third week, I end up guys are starting to come to me probably for the first time in my life saying, "Well, how'd you do that?" So what the progression became is 12 weeks, I got the highest score and graduated first in my class. And probably that was the single turning point that I said to myself, you know, if I try something hard enough, because at first, I, I, the first week, number one, was a mistake. I mean, it wasn't like I tried. Then I tried harder and harder and harder. And by the last day, I had the highest grade out of, you know, 50 guys. And probably that was the turning point that I said to myself, you know, if I try hard enough, like going to San Quentin, doing the first study ever done in Mexico on Brandt. I mean, I just drove down there. I didn't know where I was going to live or anything. And I found a place to live and live there. for. But that's, that really, to me, was the turning point. And then I, I kind of took that into my education and did well enough that when I went to grad school, it wasn't like, what are your grades like? You know, they're, they're cool. Sure, we'll take you. So I think that... I mean, I haven't thought about that in a long time, but I think that was really the turning point. Yeah. There's, I, bet, uh, I bet a lot of people have, like, found their own way and achieved success. If they did sit and think about it, they'd, they'd have some sort of, like, eureka moment where something changed, you know. And I absolutely agree with you. Uh, just the idea that if you work hard enough, I think I kind of feel that way. I feel like if I just work hard enough, it'll work out. And, and it'll be okay, you know? Um, and whatever little success I have in life, I think has come from that. But, all right, so this book, Waterfowl of the World, uh, over 500 pages, over 1,000 photographs, over 40 countries that you visited in just a couple of years uh, to take these pictures, never been done before. It's never, you, you took pictures of every species of waterfowl on the planet. Uh, yeah, we've talked a lot about it. You gave a really rad presentation a couple evenings ago uh, for the clients that came through for this last hunt. But if you don't mind, reiterate that story. How did it come to be? How did you make this happen? Uh, you've got to you've got to be one of the most well traveled people I've ever met. So yeah, how did that all go down, man? Well, kind of the way it happened is that I had done a book before called Game Birds. You know, five years ago. And it was the first book that had ever been done on all the game birds in <clears throat> North America. Pheasant, quail, grouse, that kind of stuff. 34 species, including 13 species introduced in Hawaii. And I photographed them all. And that was kind of something I set up for myself and said, you know, as I look, at, look around, I haven't seen a book like that. And I figured it was something I wanted, wanted to give a shot. But it was in North America. It took me about three years. But during the course of that, it, it kind of dawned on me, you know, I'm doing this about game birds, but what I really, my thing is waterfowl. So this thing gets into my head. Could I possibly, you know, do waterfowl on a giant basis? And there actually had been a book in 1997 written by a guy named Frank Todd. And at the time, it did have a single book with every species of waterfowl in the book as far as text. And he wrote the whole thing. And it had photos. But he didn't take all the photos for one. And it was the quality of the, of the nine, late of the 90s. It was all slides. And you look at it now. I even look at my photos from the late 90s and go, how did I ever publish that? I mean, they're horrible compared to, to today's digital uh, photography. 
and I and it just it had always been in the back of my mind. I, I'm always looking for me. The, the hype is doing something. The thrill is doing something nobody's done. Started with San Quentin. No, that had never been done. Yeah, I'm getting that. You like you you're motivated by being the like this Neil Armstrong idea, like the first one to set foot on this idea. Well, you know, it, it's 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 worked out that way. And then once I, I go, you know, I, I can't let myself give up. So I did the Game Birds book, and it was very successful. Um, so I looked at this book and said, can it be done? It, it's kind of what this Frank Todd did, but in a modern version, digital photography. And then the world has changed drastically in 25 years. And I think in his book there was 150 species. There's 25. They're not brand new, discovered, but there's been a whole lot of splitting of species of waterfowl. Canada geese is a great example. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Talk you know, about that if you would. Yeah, uh, it's a great example. I mean, back in the day, there was a whole bunch of species of Canada geese that included the three little tiny ones, or four little tiny ones. And that was split out here a number of year ago, years ago as cackling geese. So the Richardson cackling goose that they have in the Texas panhandle, the little guy, mm -hmm. the Aleutian Canada geese in California, and the cacklers in Oregon, for instance. Those guys are no longer Canada geese. They're cackling geese, and they are a full species by themselves. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they now have a full chapter by themselves, whereas if I would have done this book 20 years ago, they'd be in one chapter, and that's happened to a whole bunch of ducks and geese. There's been this splitting, and the splitting has occurred from the advent of uh, <clears throat> genetic analysis. You know, you can look at, it, at the genes, and you find out that they're... It's kind of like... You know, one time there's a, a full species called a Mexican duck. You know, people thought it, they called it a, you know, Mexican mallard. It's not a Mexican mallard. It's a full species, Anis diazii, and it's a Mexican duck. So that was split out. So, so there's been a lot of that going on. Plus, in 25 years, the world has changed drastically, habitat-wise, administration-wise, um, pollution-wise, uh, more endangered species, all that. And then there's some species like Canada geese, and snow geese that have done the opposite. They've skyrocketed in their numbers from what they were 25 years ago. Yeah, we've been looking at lots of snow geese. Yeah, and, and white fronts. There's more yeah. white fronts, you know. Cackling, uh, Aleutian Canada geese, or Aleutian, what used to be Aleutian Canada geese, which are now Aleutian cackling geese, at one time there were 800 birds, 800 pairs. There's 50, 60,000 now. And the limit's 10 a day where they were closed before. Man, you know, I was in California a couple of weeks ago. Those limits over there are enviable. And the, the number of different kinds of waterfowl, like, you know, I live where mallards are king. You know, I'm, mo I'm motivated by chasing specks and geese these days. But there's all sorts. Of, I mean, there's like tons of pintails and widgeons and different kinds of swans. And they're thick. You just drive across highways. And like I called my buddy and was like emotional. You know, I said, man, I, I've never seen this many ducks before. That was just an aside about ducks, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah, sure. So anyways, um, it ended up that, that I decided to, you know, go for this book because of all those reasons. I already had essentially all the photos of the North American ones. Now, I improved upon those over the course. The, the project really took me about three and a half years to complete, but I had a bunch already. So I figured I got a good start on North America. Mm -hmm. I had been to South America quite a bit, Argentina in particular hunting, some outstanding uh, waterfowl hunting in Argentina. And I had also been to Africa and done some duck hunting. So I kind of knew about 
you know, I already had, and I, whenever I go on a hunting trip, typically I'll shoot in the morning in the gray. As soon as I get good light, I'm taking photos. And like we, we saw, you know, we had a couple of days with real bad weather. Yeah. You know, I either hunted or we were doing our photo class. But then today, as an example, we had good weather. I never picked up a gun. Yeah. Just took pictures. Sure. Yeah. So that's kind of what, what I've done. So I just started down this road. Um, there is a scientific um, publication called the International Ornithological Congress. And they're the ones that I used as my base for the 167 species. So I got a laundry list, right? Look at what I have and just start picking them off. I mean, I just started going, well, I went to... And luckily, the, inter the, the, the internet allows you to, to do this research, you know, sitting at home. You know, think about 30 years ago how you'd do it. You have to go to a library, like you say, you know, and try to figure it out. It'd be impossible. So, for instance, I went to Chile. There was maybe 10 species down there, of which eight I didn't have. And because of the internet, I could contact people down there that were mostly birdwatching guides. A few of them were photographers, but... I said, hey, you know, these are, this is what I'm looking for. Can you help me find this? So everywhere I went, I had a bird oftentimes I had never seen. Oftentimes I went to a place I had never been. Always meeting a guy I didn't know. And I never knew what the weather would be like. But, and then I had to pick the right season. So I kind of just started mapping that out as I went and pecking these things off. And I did 40 countries in 36 months. Sometimes two a month. I did six or eight countries in Africa. I did Australia, New Zealand, Papua New Guinea, Iceland, Azerbaijan, uh, England, Scotland, all over Canada, the U.S., Mexico, Nicaragua, on and on. And I just kept picking them off. And as I would get those species taken care of, then I would concentrate on the next group. And I tried to do it in groups, you know, as many as I could get. But there were sometimes I went to, like for instance, I went to the Philippines for one duck, flew from California to the Philippines via South Korea, spent five days over there to photograph one species of duck flew home. Because that's the only place you could find it. It's the only place in the world they exist. I went to another place. That's the Philippine duck, right? The Philippine duck. There's another one that's called the Andaman teal. It is found in one small island chain in the Sea of Bengal closer to Thailand than India, but it's owned, owned by India. So to get there, I flew 8,000 miles, went to India first and photographed there for about 10 days. Then I went to a place called Chennai, India, two and a half hour flight to these islands and went there to photograph one duck. There's only 1,000 left in the world, supposedly. I mean, that's what they estimate. Had a guide lined up, got off the airplane, 85 degrees, 85% humidity, this town is like smoke and tore up and everything else, like many of the Indians' towns. I asked this guy, I said, hey, what are the chances of me getting a photo of this duck that I just came 8,000 miles to get? He said, don't worry, Saeed, we're going to show you the duck. We go around the corner, 20 minutes later, he points to a wetland on the edge of town, trashed by the edge of the, edge of the pond, and says, there they are, there were 400 of them. Half the world's population in a pond next to this town. And I sat there for three days and photographed them with impunity. It was like nuts. I thought that would be crazy hard, and it wasn't. 
Well, I mean, it was hard to get there. There's a long ways to go. And then there are other ones that were so hard that, you know, I almost didn't, wasn't successful, but finally was. Um, you know, one of those was, as a, it's a bird called the Salvatore's Teal, found only in the mountains of New Guinea, Papua New Guinea. And when I looked on the internet, I, I found photos of, the, of this duck, but they were all taken either through a spotting scope, you know, with a camera, mm-hmm. or they were taken with a camera, but they were cropped so, so tight that it was just, they were all, I didn't see one professional level photo. So I go, well, that's, that's rugged. There's no photos for me even to compare to, or even call the guy that took one. You know, I could, you can, you know, I found some people on Instagram, you know, I'd find people and ask them if they'd help me point me in the right direction. Well, that was impossible with this guy. Flew to Australia, photographed there for 10 days, flew to Port Moresby, capital of Papua New Guinea, then flew to a mining town up in the mountains where I had done some research and found out that that's where the bird watchers were seeing them. Flew up there. This place is, is the weather's so bad, it fl- has two flights a day, three a week make it in the whole week out of about 12 tries because the weather's so bad. Got lucky, flew up there. Long story short, there are riverine species found in the jungle, impenetrable jungle down to the, to the river's edge that you have to hack your way through with the machete to get to the river. There's no trails. First day we're driving around, buddy of mine went with me we see a pair of them on the river get out of the car oh man this is going to be easy there they are get out of the car 150 yards they fly they're only found in pairs and family groups or neighbor flock up and everybody in in new guinea has a 22 or a shotgun seems like they either shoot the birds for their plumes because they use them in their headdresses or if they can eat it they eat it so these birds are the wildest thing i have ever seen in my life Long story short, 60 hours sitting in blinds, four minutes of photography mm. of two birds, and that's what I got, but they're good photos. When you, when you would have like an arduous journey and like really, really had to earn it, like you said, 60 hours, that's after you traveled all the way across the world, 60 hours to get four minutes of them hanging, hanging around, you could take some pictures. I mean, what does it feel like? Is it, is it relief or is it triumph? Well, it's a little bit of both. It's relief in the fact that I didn't have to go back. Did you have to go back anywhere? I, I did, yeah, a couple places. Romania was one of them for red-breasted geese. I went three times to get them, and I never got them. I, I, I did get them, but you know, it was, that was rugged. But in this case, it was relief that I didn't have to go back to Papua New Guinea and, and repeat that both from a time standpoint and a money standpoint because mm-hmm. you realize that I'm paying for all this. Yeah. You know, as far as the travel goes. That was out of my pocket. So I didn't want to do that. Plus, Papua New Guinea, in the world, the ruggedest places in my estimation, I, just as far as the ability to travel, uh, the fact that there's a lot of pollution, a lot of trash and all that is India and Papua New Guinea. Those two places are rugged. More than Madagascar, you talked about Madagascar. Yeah, Madagascar's right up there. But the, the, those three are rugged places, you know, as far as you know the facilities and the road systems, and you know, India is 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 a, is a tough place. I photographed there near Delhi, right? Mm-hmm. In the morning, took forty. There's some urban wetlands right on the edge of town. A couple of them are even national parks. 
45 minutes to get there in the morning, three hours to get back at night because of the traffic mm. and the pollution and all the stuff. So there's some... So the Papua New, New Guinea was a, a bit of relief. I didn't have to go back, but triumph that I did get the photos. And it was like the big sigh of relief. And I'm, you know, I looked at my camera about 100 times, you know, just... And I, you know, zoom in on it. Is that going to be sharp enough? Because I don't do any, any editing in the field. I wait till I get home because I can't tell till it's on the big screen. Sure. You know, I don't want to do it on, the, on a laptop. So it's kind of both. You know, you get both. So that presentation you gave, uh, you know, it was about like an hour long. Tons and tons of pictures. And you're talking about your journey through the book. The, the place I really keyed in on, and it's kind of references a conversation I had on a podcast I did with a this podcast called The Wild Huntsman. Um, David Lemire, really excellent podcast. But we were talking about, you know, there's this idea around waterfowling that it's, uh, you know, it's, it's for people that like to be catered to, right? And there are, there are a lot of like high-end duck lodges and you know, really good food and just very comfortable uh, surroundings and, 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 you know, places where what I associate waterfowling with is like hunting tim public timber in Arkansas, which is like a slug fest. And so it seems like everything else is like you have butlers and whatnot. But I was talking to David Lemire and we were, I was really asking, I said, is there, I never hear about any kind of like backcountry, like mountain duck hunts. You know, and maybe that doesn't happen because up at those high altitudes, it freezes and you can't get to them. But uh, you were talking about going to Peru and having to go like 15,000 feet up the top of these mountains. And there are these there are these pools, these ponds up at the top of these mountains where, you know, there's quite a bit of waterfowl there. Uh, and you even said that you like found the one guy that in Peru that guides for waterfowl right. to take you out there. And I've been thinking about it ever since because I was like, man, that looks like that looks like an earn it duck hunt right there. Uh, I'd actually be interested like that hunt or that photography session, especially like you. You live near Sacramento. You're going to fly out of Sacramento Airport. Right. Like what's it actually like to get there and get up on the top of that mountain and find those birds? Well, originally, the guy that I the guy that I located. Uh, had a booth at SCI, Safari Club International. Okay. And he offered hunts. And I went there and hunted with him before the book. And at that time, you could import birds. And it was really a, a taxidermist, you know, uh, collection type of a hunt in the mountains. You could shoot some of these species, bring them back, and, and get them mounted. Now, since that time, it's become more difficult to import, import birds from Peru. And then the second half of that hunt was more of a traditional duck hunt in the lowlands. So when this book came around, because I didn't take pictures, that was, you know, I didn't take but a handful of pictures when I was up there because we were shoot, shooting a few birds. So when I went back, what you had to do is that I contacted him. He says, well, you know, I, I kind of haven't been doing it as much because you can't import birds like you could before. But I got a guy that worked for me that would love to take you out. So I arranged, you know, I paid the guy. So we end up, I flew from... Real quick, when you say you can't import birds, you mean like you couldn't... Are they are they sending back like frozen birds that you get taxidermy? Yes. That's what they were doing. Could you... Is there a place to get... Could you get it taxidermy there and then ship that? 
I maybe you could. I don't know about that. But at the time that I went, you could shoot a bird mm-hmm. that was exotic to you, right? Yeah. And you could freeze it, and you could and you could ship it back in your luggage. You had to go through the the USDA Department of Agriculture to get those taxidermists that can handle that stuff because mm-hmm. they're they're certified, right? Okay. And then you take it home and have your your taxidermist mount it. I was actually uh, collecting birds for UC Davis, but it's the same principle. Yeah. And then that then oh wait I didn't think about that so you were I mean that's like that's like Roosevelt like you know when Roosevelt was going out and like shooting specimens of animals to then have taxidermy that's that's like some old school naturalist yeah stuff. well that's what part of this hunt was was like that and then there are more people of course in the waterfowling world these days that are into getting a, a, a taxidermy done on more than just the North American. Mm-hmm. You know, some guy's goal is to get all the North American. Then you have guys, you know, people that are going beyond that and they're bringing stuff from, you know, foreign countries. And particularly Argentina is the same way. You used to be able to import birds for taxidermy. You can't now. And that's just kind of a trend that's occurred. You know, I don't want to be bothered with it, but that's, that's a whole different story. Yeah. So anyways, so when I went back, his assistant, who I hadn't met before, I fly from Sacramento to Dallas, Dallas to Lima, met the guy in Lima, and then it's like four hours, like straight up into the Andes, and luckily, there was a place to stay um, part way up. There's, what was it? Oh, some hot springs. That's what it was. There were some hot springs about an hour drive from the top of the mountain. So every day we got done photographing, we'd come back and stay at this pretty decent hotel yeah. at the Hot Springs. But we would drive up, and, and that Hot Springs was at about 11,000 feet. So you're already high elevation there. And then you go up this gravel road, you keep on going, you keep on going, over a 15,000-foot pass. And then that photo that I showed in the, in the, in the presentation is these expansive gra- uh, grassland and wetland complexes at the plateau of the high Andes, all of it between 12 and 14,000 feet. The pass was over 15, but then you drop down. Called the Puna, P-U-N-A, grasslands and wetlands. And there's a number of indigenous species, the Puna teal, the Andean goose, um, uh, crested duck is another one, and then uh, the Andean uh, duck. So there's four or five species that really you only find in the high Andes. So my goal was to go there and photograph those guys, uh, which we did over about a six-day period. But that was just a pretty... T- and then every day we'd go back down to the hotel where they had a restaurant, and every day we'd go back up. I get altitude sickness, so I got to take, you know, pills. Uh, so altitude doesn't agree with me, but every day, there we go. 15,000 feet is incredibly high. Yeah. So in the photography, once we got there, surprisingly enough, was was was... I wouldn't call it easy, but it wasn't real difficult. I was able to, um, you know, some of it get, um, you know, just on the edge of a, of a, of a wetland and set up a little blind um, and get fo- We'd see birds, and then we'd set up the blind in the dark, and, and there were small enough ponds that the birds would oftentimes come close. So it was, I got everything I needed there. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, that's, and it, it looked otherworldly in those pictures. It really did. What uh, can you think of any place in North America that you could do some sort of like, like, you know, fill a backpack and like hump up in the mountains and have some gnarly little up in the air 
pond hunt somewhere? God, I, I'm, I'm not really sure because most of the species that we have really aren't adapted to that kind of habitat. Yeah. You know, there's harlequin ducks that breed in, in, the, in the Rocky Mountains, in the Canadian Rockies, but then they migrate to the coast. So they're not there. I mean, really, there's not a lot of places like that. But I tell you, there is one in North America that's kind of like that. Okay. And that's Barrow, Alaska. And if you know, which is the furthest north town in North America. Mm-hmm. And I've been there several times because there's some very, very unique species there. Uh, the one that I think is the most beautiful at all, of all, which is the king eider. So basically, you fly to Anchorage or Fairbanks, and then you fly to Barrow, which has Alaska Airlines flights. There's only about 13 miles of road system there um, that goes out through the tundra. So what you do is that you have to get a permit with the, with the uh, native corporation to be out there. Then you can go anywhere you want. And a lot of that's just trudging around through the tundra. I mean, you're just off three miles through the tundra. You, you know, you, with your binocs, you see a pond, and looks like there's some ducks on it, and you trudge out there and go to the next. And so that's a pretty – and you get king eider, which is a beautiful duck. Wild. Like their head – it's not normal It's not normal duck shape. It like, it's, like a, it's like a wave. Yeah, it's, it's a gorgeous duck. You get – uh, king eider, which are very widespread, they're circumpolar in distribution across Siberia. There's actually lots of them, but they stay always very far north. The spectacle eider, which is a super unique eider found only in, in parts of Siberia and Alaska. Until the 80s, they didn't even know where they wintered. It was like a big mystery. And finally, they found them in the middle of the Bering Sea uh, on aerial surveys, and that's where they winter. But they breed up there at, at Barrow, photographed those guys, which are really cool. Then the Stellar's Eider, which is the smallest of the Eiders, it also breeds there. Uh, the biggest wintering populations are really in Norway, but they also winter in Kodiak Island in Alaska. Photographed those guys. Plus long-tailed ducks, which used to be Old Squaw. It was the old name. Uh, some specks, uh, white-fronted geese, some brant nests there. Um, so there's a nice variety of birds that you can, of the real Arctic nesting species. The most common uh, and the pintail are fairly common, too, up there. Really? Yeah, they don't, they don't need to fly that far, but there's some up there. And are, are you finding them on ponds? Because, like, eiders are sea ducks, right? Yeah, but during the breeding season, they come inland, they breed on freshwater. Okay. So what they do is you have these smaller, what they call tundra ponds, surrounded by all this expansive tundra, and they have this wetland. And what they'll do is they'll pick those out, and that's where they'll feed heavily, and I'm going in June, right before they start nesting. And they feed heavily in preparation for nesting. Then the hen goes off and lays an egg. Then she joins the male again, goes off and lays another one until her clutch is complete. Then he splits and she sits on the eggs. And that's okay. in fresh water. But they do all winter on salt. Okay, so if you went up to Barrow to hunt them, you'd have to do it. It'd be a sea duck hunt. Well, you wouldn't go to Barrow because the thing is, is that they're gone out of there by the time the hunting season's open. So you would have to go somewhere else. Uh, Barrow is so far north that, I mean, it's like a wasteland in the winter. Even the ocean freezes. I mean, the first time I went there, I got there. The ocean, as far as you could see, was frozen. Seven days later, it looked like, the, like Hawaii. There was no, no ice. But when I got there, there was only a short lee of maybe 50 yards between the shoreline and the ice. And then in a week, it, it all melted or drifted away. So in the dead of winter, when you could hunt, there's nothing there. So you have to come further south. First of all, spectacle eiders are endangered species. You can't hunt them. Stellar's eiders are endangered, and you can't hunt them. You can hunt king eiders in the most popular place in 
Alaska is St. Paul Island. That's where that's where most people get their birds. And that's folks like, are they sitting on like rock jetties? Or are they out in boats or what? Boats and and uh, and points and things like that. They do some some hunting in boats where they'll they'll drag decoys behind a zodiac, mm-hmm. you know, and drift. And and then some are on points. I actually shot a king eider in Kodiak Island, um, which you know there's not a lot there, but it was uh, it was a number of years ago. But I did get a king that I mounted. Uh, do you have a lot of mounts, or do the pictures kind of serve that purpose? I have some mounts. I don't have a lot. I don't have a single picture of a duck in my house that I took. Not one. Well, you said you don't. You have so you have like uh, artists that use your pictures as references. Right. I have a bunch of fo- a bunch of paintings by other people that were done on my based on my photos. But I don't have photos. I have paintings that I've got. You know, part of the deal is I get a free painting, right? Sure. So I got some nice paintings. You know. Uh, and you've had, have you had any of your uh, pictures referenced for like duck stamps? We were talking about that the other day. Um, um, Robert Steiner has used some of my photos in some of his, uh, in a number of his uh, duck stamp prints, uh, particularly for the state. Uh, he's used a number of mine. So I'm real, he's a San Francisco well-known artist. Okay. Uh, are you, is legacy anything that you think? about not not i don't know i mean it like this book is kind of leaving something well i mean you've got you've got a lot of books i mean you've got what at least five right i have seven seven so you've got seven books where you've written and you've provided all the photography right like a really holistic approach to this so and maybe i'm wrong but i would assume that you have some idea of what you want to leave behind like what you want to contribute to this you know this continuing narrative about waterfowl yeah and i think this book for me is really you know it's kind of it's kind of my opus it really is the culmination of all this stuff that started back when you know i found the public hunting area near la and i said hey dude let's go try to shoot a duck you know a lot of years ago yeah and that just progressed and i look at my at my career it's it's always been somehow associated with waterfowl, whether it be as a as a job and a profession. I mean, I banded lots of ducks. I flew aerial surveys for 13 years in the in California, counting them. You know, went up to to Alaska during my my tenure and and banded brant on the breeding grounds, uh, and did a lot of that cool stuff. And then the photography. So I think this book is really kind of what I I'm leaving behind. And I and I made an effort to be able to provide it to um, conservation agencies free of charge because I was able to raise some funds for the actual printing of the book, the actual design, printing, binding, and shipping. So the organizations, you know, for instance, like Ducks Unlimited or Delta or California Waterfowl or whoever can really get the book for free. Because, you know, the coffee cup didn't cost anything. So here you go. Here's a coffee cup. Sure. But if you sell it, then you keep, it's a $90 book, $99 with shipping anywhere in the U.S., 540 pages, 1,299 photos. It's a monster thing. It weighs eight pounds. Um, yeah, you could hurt somebody with it if you wanted there to. There you go. Beat them down. <laughs> <laughs> but then, then that organization keeps $45 to do good things for, for ducks, right? Yeah. And then 45 comes back to me to offset my travel. And I spent lots of money on travel. Yeah, I can imagine. 
Uh, yeah. But that, but that, I knew that going in. That was that was kind of my plan. That was my business model, you know, to be able to at the end of the day break even. And you said that, and it, it as soon as you said it, it made total sense. But you said this is being used as a textbook in some places now too, right? Yeah, they're considering it for a textbook at UC Davis is maybe a supplemental text because uh, Dr. John Eady, which is really really an outstanding professor of of waterfowl ecology at UC Davis, he wrote the foreword to the book. And then he's looking at it for some of his classes, as well as a, uh, a professor at Yale as well. So, and it's a peer-reviewed document. I had three, three uh, waterfowl scientists review every word, every photo. One guy in England, two in the U.S. And uh, so it qualifies as a, it really was designed as a coffee table book, you know, a photo-driven coffee table book. But once you add all the text, it kind of is a dual purpose. It, it really is a photo-driven coffee table book, but yes, it has a lot of bio, biological information. Yeah, which is, for someone like me who's like fascinated with waterfowl, right? And I've got, these, I've got these species that I deal with, but I'm just fascinated with waterfowl in general. It's exactly what I want. You know, I can look at lots of pictures of every single species on the entire, in the entire planet. And then there's, you know, a substantial amount of text. You're talking about what their eggs look like, where they breed. You talk about their courtship. Um, I've learned a ton with you being here. It's the first time I've, like when uh, we were doing the, that photography and we were hunting with a guy who's a, a dude I've hunted with for several years now, very, very passionate about hunting speckle belly geese or white fronts. Uh, and he was asking you about, you know, these, uh, these old wives tales about him that he'd heard his whole life. And you were saying, no, that, you know, the bars and, uh, how big the white front on their head is. That's, that's not an indication of age. It's just an indication that they're not a mature bird, that they are mature, that they, sorry, that they are a mature bird. Uh, and what that starts, that starts like after year one, right? Right. Right. And then does it, I, we never even got into this. Is it like, you know, we call them chickens if they're, juveniles they don't have any bars on their belly when they get to year two and they have a white front and they have black bars does that uh does that become exaggerated over time or is it just it, that's what they've got and that's what it looks like forever well the black bars that they get can be it can be even after that after that second year but one with a real black belly doesn't mean it's real old and that's what a lot of hunters think they can have very few but it, that's just a that's just a, a genetic trait of that bird. You know, its parents had dark bellies, so it does too, you know. Yeah. It's, it's the same thing as that. But a lot of hunters say, oh, that, that bird's got that real dark belly. That's a real old bird. That's not the case. So there's a lot of that, you know, which... And in the book, what I tried to do is be very consistent throughout the, all species. So, and, and, and before I started, you know, I kind of looked... Like, for instance, going to Australia, I go, well, man, I got to make sure I go there at the right time of year. Because like here, if I came to look at beautiful mallards in July, there aren't any, right? Yeah, you know, probably a lot of people don't know that that like a Drake mallard does not have that striking green iridescent head year round. That's a court that's a courtship display. Right. That comes on in the fall. They maintain it until the winter and spring, and then once they've bred, then they go off and molt and they turn brown looking like a hen. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to go to Australia in the wrong month. Because what if I go there and they're all brown ducks? Yeah. You know, there's no color to them. Well, come to find out, which is in this book on every species, which was 
took internet research beyond belief is that guess what? Most of the ducks in Australia have the same plumage every day of the year. Because instead of breeding based on the fact that they fly north in the summer and then they leave that cold country where there's no food and they come down here for the winter, and it happens the same every year. If a mallard's going to breed, it's going to breed in let's just, the month that, that that particular hen, she's going to breed in June. It's going to be June every year, right? Okay. Australia is different in the fact that those birds have to be biologically ready to be able to breed based on environmental conditions. It rains 10 inches at some wetland 150 miles from where they're living. They all go there and breed. doesn't matter what month of the year it is. It could be June. It could be July. It could be whatever. So they have to be biologically ready with this beautiful plumage so that they can get a mate and go do their thing. Wow. Is that, is that just birds that are endemic to Australia, or do you have birds migrating to Australia? No. The, uh, the birds in Australia stay. There's, very, there's a little migration maybe to New Zealand or to New Guinea, but you know, there's no giant. And there's migrations within the country. But, there, but there's a different you know, program with those guys. Same thing in South America. The birds from the south fly north in the winter. You know, it's obvious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they nest in Tierra del Fuego, and then they fly up to central Argentina to spend the winter. So, you know, and it's the opposite of ours, too, because it's the southern hemisphere. Mm -hmm. So the thing is, is that when I went to Australia, I go, well, I guess there are months that are more common for breeding, for sure. But typically, some of those species look the same every day of the year because they have to be biologically prepared for for that breeding season if the conditions present themselves. So I've... That's in the book. So now you know. I didn't know. Yeah, that's fascinating. Is it? Is it that like all? So, so what's what's uh, an example of a duck that we could be talking about with this? Well, a, duck, a, a freckled duck. You saw the picture yeah. of that with the freckly color on it. Freckled duck. Yeah, the really, really, really neat. So, like a freckled duck. Is it that all of the freckled ducks in Australia jump onto that spot, or? Are you having some hens get bred in June, some hens get bred in October, just no, throughout the year? Yeah, it could be. It, yeah, you're right. It isn't like every one of them in at this one spot goes to the. It, it's they each of these kind of subpopulations around the country. Yeah, take advantage of what conditions that somehow they sense. So I don't know that there's a lot of flying at 800 miles or a thousand miles to breed, but there certainly is 150 because Western Australia could be bone dry. And then another thing that happens in a place like that is that in the bone dry, like in Western Australia around Perth, mm-hmm. those populations of ducks, if it's real, even in the winter when they're not breeding, in their winter, when they're not breeding as frequently, they'll go find good water. So it, they're much more nomadic. That's what they call a lot of those birds. They don't call them migratory. They call them nomadic. Okay. And, and it, that's what they do in Australia and New Zealand, for instance, and even a little bit in Africa as well. Um, <clears throat> is there, like, I don't want to do these kind of basic questions, like what's your favorite duck, but is there on this, on this journey to complete this, this opus text, is there a, was there an experience that was like the most meaningful to you or the one that it, just is going to hold, hold a place in you for the rest, rest of your life? I think there really were two, and one of them I alluded to already, which was the Salvatore's Teal in New Guinea. Mm-hmm. It was so difficult. I mean, once I got there, it was 10 times worse than I thought it would be. 
you know, I figured I'd take the techniques I've used around the world and make them work. But, you know, it took 60 hours, six days and all that. So I've already described that. But that was just like, man, I finally got that picture. And now I have what I would hope to think is a professional level picture of that species. The other one was, is the Madagascar one, which we haven't really talked about much here, but we did, you know, on the, the presentation. Mm-hmm. And that's the rarest duck in the world. Um, you know, we, we, we really haven't talked about that, right? No, no, we haven't. Okay, so that one, just from the standpoint of, like, wow, I got that thing. This is a species that's found only in one lake in Madagascar. It was thought extinct for 15 years. No, nobody saw it. Some researchers, actually from the Peregrine Front out of Boise, Idaho, were looking with some people from, biologists from Madagascar for an endangered raptor. <clears throat> they come to this lake up in the mountains in absolutely in the middle of nowhere, looking with their binos. They go, wow, there's some ducks on that lake. I wonder what they are. And they look at them, look at their bird book and go, those are those extinct ducks. They found 23 of them in the entire world on one lake. Mm. So they get all crazy. They come back. They tell everybody. They go back. They do more surveys. They find a few more, like 40. And then they determine that in the world, this duck that had been extirpated forever, well, for 15 years minimum, that they found a few. So they ended up then uh, establishing a research station there, funded mostly by Europeans and Americans to try to study these birds. They captured some and started a captive breeding program. But I went there before they had released any of those captive birds, and I wanted to go to the spot. Six days of travel. I left at night, so I counted that day. Three days of flying, went to Europe, Addis Ababa, Ababa, Ethiopia. Ethiopia to Antonovaro, which is the capital of Madagascar. First day was 10 hours on pavement, which was mostly potholes. Next day was 10 hours on dirt, and the last 40 miles was four hours on the worst road I showed you the photos. Yeah, that, it's in, that, it does not look like a road. It just tore up. Did that, got to this lake where these birds, at this point, there's probably about 70 birds on the lake. Hiked a half, half hour down this steep slope to this lake. The researchers had a yellow canoe, got in the yellow canoe with a local guide and a paddle, and in 15 minutes, I saw these, the most endangered duck on the planet, photographed him like crazy for the next three days. And I mean, just to get to that place, and, and then the photos I got, because not everybody's hauling a 600 millimeter lens to Madagascar, I got like pictures I'm really proud of, of the most endangered duck on the planet. So that was a, that was a high point for me. Uh, I, I, I almost think I would know the answer to this question, but... And and I've kind of described to some people like that, you know, that when you're hunting, the kill can kind of be anticlimactic. Like you put all this effort into achieving it and then you do. And it, it's weird. You know, I don't know what percentage of birds when you're shooting birds with, uh, with shotguns, you know, maybe 25% of them still look you know, fairly pristine by the time you get your hands on them. Uh, I hate, I hate for birds to get all messed up before yeah. you get on. Cause like, I want to look at them. I want right. to touch them and pet them. Right. Yeah. All full of mud. And- yeah. Just beat up. Um, but with these pictures, you know, 
you're not pulling a trigger, but you're essentially hunting them, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, the thing is, is that I still think that the, the best wildlife photographers in the world are people that understand hunting because they've kind of been through that process. And, and with the ducks, you know, you got to get close. I mean, I get some of these guys that would show me a duck in 150 yards, and I say, well, I should have stayed in bed because that doesn't do me any good. i got to be inside 50, 20s better. So I have to use the techniques, getting in the dark, set of waders. I mean, I wore waders probably 200 days a year, you know, when I was doing this. I'd get in the water in the dark, back up in the cattails of the vegetation with my tripod, big lens, and stay there for five hours. And, you know, birds flying by, and I'd scout it ahead of time, or the guide would, mm-hmm. and there's a bunch of birds there. So that's a hunting technique that you would use. You know, sometimes I had, I had to sneak up on them, you know, belly crawl up on them yeah. and, and get close. So a lot of those techniques. And then the other thing, too, is that, you know, a lot of people, they say, well, you're not a real patient person, you know. <laughs> I don't seem to be. But I tell you what, when I'm sitting in a blind, I'm as patient as it can possibly be because what you wait for is the shot. I mean, I have tens of thousands of photos of snow geese and pintails, but I still am always looking for the shot. And what I was able to achieve with this book is that while I didn't get the shot on every species, I got a whole bunch of the shots. So... You've got this lifetime of experience. You've worked up to this thing. Again, you described it as your opus. Uh, and, I, and I said it to you like when I first picked you up at the airport. Uh, like, you're incredibly sharp, man. Like, you doing this traveling. You'd been up since 2 or something in the morning. You'd been in, on two different airplanes. And you look like you just came out of the bathroom just like sharp and crisp as hell. So you obviously aren't done. You're not going to go sit in a recliner and twiddle your thumbs. So you've created your opus. Are you going to try and do some other sort of opus? I, you've got to be thinking about what's next. Well, yeah. I mean, the first, the first and the foremost is that, you know, this book has only been available for about six weeks. Mm-hmm. You know, part of the problem was I should have had it sooner, but the whole supply chain thing sure. has, you know, jammed me up. Um, there's actually two editions of this. One is the standard edition, which is 99 plus shipping, I mean, including shipping. But I also did 250 limited edition, which has a leather cover, type of a cover, has it goes in a slip case, signed and numbered, and they're 250 bucks. And surprisingly enough, I cannot believe how many of those I've sold. I mean, which is really, I mean, that really hopefully says something about what people, and they haven't seen it, they just ordered it. Well, I mean, you, you, to be fair, man, you created an archival text. You know, this is something that, I mean, it's going to, I'm looking at it right now. It's sitting on the coffee table up here at Black Duck, and it's going to live there. And everybody who comes here and hangs out like we were yesterday and sitting and talking, they're going to put their hands on that, and they're going to look through it, and they're going to read, and they're going to, you know, they're going to be, if they're looking through that, they're, if they're here, they're interested in birds anywhere they're going to be impacted in some way by that. Uh, so, yeah, you absolutely created something that's deserving of fanfare and people wanting to get their hands on it. And like we talked about, birders and duck hunters are obsessive people, you know, so they're going to want this. Uh, and, yeah, like you said, you've sold a ton of them already. Yeah, I mean, surprise! I'm just blown away that it's been this successful already. You know, Ducks Unlimited has been a real instrumental. They ran a really a beautiful story in the November-December issue on the book, mm-hmm. published 30 of the photos from the book. I had an interview recently with Delta, 
um, their magazine editor, they're going to do something. California Waterfowl did. We're doing this. You're, you're being kind and doing this and, you know, getting the word out a little bit. I think right now I'm, I'm concentrating on the marketing of this thing. And that was a, the, the PowerPoint I did. It was the first time you guys were the guinea pig. And I've already got some other invitations, so I think it was great. Hey, man, that was great. Like I, I was sitting there, and you know, look, I was tired because, you know, when I'm doing these hunts, I'm sleeping like three hours a day, but just fascinating. And like the pictures are gorgeous. And there's, we've been talking for days about this. Like I'm learning and learning and learning, and it just makes me want to ask more and more questions. Uh, but anyway, sorry, I just wanted to interject. Yeah, yeah. so anyways, the, the point is is that I'm trying to market this thing, and, and yeah, I'm sure there'll be another project. It's just at this point, I'm not exactly sure what it's going to be. But I'll tell you what I'm leaning towards. Yeah, I'd love to know. I did a book on, on game birds. I mean, let's face it, waterfowl's my thing, mm -hmm. like you. But the game birds were, the, were, the, were there, and it was a bit of a precursor to a larger document. The thing that, and I'm always looking for something that hadn't been done, right? Sure. What really hasn't been done, and I photograph, you know, big game, deer, elk, moose, not like I do birds. Birds are my thing. But a big giant elk comes along, I'm having a good time photographing it. There's not been a book of all the big game animals in North America done in 30 plus years. So I'm, I'm thinking on that a little bit. It isn't my, it isn't my exact lane. In photography but wildlife is wildlife and, and a good picture is a good picture so that's something that I'm giving some thought I'd have to go to some folks to see if I could get some help like uh, Safari Club International mm -hmm. uh, Rocky Mountain Elk Mule Deer Foundation Whitetails Unlimited things like that uh, but that's something I'm I'm thinking I mean I'll never retire because I'd be a crazy person I'm just gonna do this till I can't do it yeah and hey, you will too yeah man probably so uh it's i've talked a little bit about why i'm in other forums about why i'm so fascinated with waterfowl and part of it is like the ephemeral nature of it you know you're constantly looking they're here then they're not or like on a micro and a macro level. So like you're watching these migrations, but then you're also saying like, you probably saw me when I was driving this van around. I'm constantly looking every little patch of water. I'm looking at what's in yeah, that. See what's there. Yeah. Hey, they're not there today. Yeah. Uh, what is it about waterfowl for you? Like you've dedicated, you know, decades to this. You know, it's, it's the intrigue of what a good example is when I worked for the, for the Bureau of Land Management only for a year. You're dealing with things where elk, mule deer, <clears throat> whatever, and, and habitats like sagebrush and forests that take a long time to change or do anything with. But as you say, the ephemeral nature of waterfowl, the magic of they leave and they go to this, now I've been to them all now, but at some point in my life, it was like they went to this magic place. Yeah, it's still like that for me, yeah. Yeah. And I've been there now and photographed, and then they come back every year. And from, and from a biological standpoint, the thing that drew me to them as a wildlife biologist was that I can manipulate that marsh, and I can make a change in one year. I can do something good in that marsh with water, with water control or with, with um, uh, you know, disking out a bunch of thick cattails where they're mm -hmm. not using it or, or 
something. You know, I can do something that's, a, there's immediate gratification. So I think for me, it's a combination of that mystery of them going and coming. The big numbers, you know, you see, you can see a bunch of elk, but you don't see 40,000. Yeah, yeah. You know, and at Sacramento Refuge, where I managed for 10 years, there's one wetland unit there that's about 50 acres and under the right conditions i can show you 40,000 pintails on 50 acres there isn't a there isn't a space on the levee where they're in the duck and the water's full of them and that kind of thing and they magically appear and they weren't there in july and come november there's 40,000 so i think it's that dynamics of the thing plus the fact that as a biologist i could do things i can put a band on them Mm-hmm. You know, I can let them go and find out what the band return is going to come back. If I band it, my name's on it as a bander. I can go, wow, that that dude found that bird. I banded it in Alaska. It got shot in Mexico. And then that just, so I think it's the intrigue of all that. That Plus, I, I like to hunt them. I like the marsh. You know, I like to be in the fields where, where they are. And as a hunting, I mean, I hunted all kinds of things through my life, but I always hunted those the most. You know, that, that's the number one thing. And there's a lot of waterfowl hunters that are obsessed with it, like you are and that I am. I think a larger percentage of the hunting public than it is with most other species. You don't find, I mean, you find pheasants forever, but the numbers of people that are into that or quail forever is nothing like the waterfowl group. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there, even with all the biologic and scientific base that you have, like, it's because it's magic. You know, there's just there's, there's that little sprinkle of magic uh, that's good to hold on to, uh, just as people. Like it's it's good to, you know, to get giddy about stuff. Still, uh, I hope I never lose that. Um, well, Gary, we've been talking for a long time. Why don't you tell people how they can find you, how they can follow you, and I think most importantly, right now, how they can get a copy of that book. All right. Well, the one, the first place I announced it was on Instagram because uh, I I. Uh, I've been on Instagram really for only for about three years. And, I, and part of it, frankly, was in preparation for this book. I wanted to get some followers to know that I was. So I posted a whole bunch of things from around the world and mm-hmm. kind of got this group of people going, wow, I never saw that duck before. You know, where's that thing, you know, from? And then I always put a little narrative with it. So it's a Gary underscore Kramer underscore photography. You can put my name. It'll come up. That's my Instagram page. I have no other social media but that. But I am pretty active with that. Yeah. And then the other place where you can get the book is that I have a website, which is Gary Kramer, G-A-R-Y-K-R-A-M-E-R.net. And then you can go to books on that that website, and you can then order using PayPal, which is real simple. You just push a button and order it. Mm -hmm. So that's where to get it. I mean, it's available on Amazon, or it will be, but... I get hosed on Amazon because yeah. they take everything. Mm-hmm. So, But it will be available. There, I've had a number of inquiries from Europe and, and overseas, Australia, and so on. And the shipping's so expensive, I tell them to buy it from Amazon. Um, but buying it direct from me, they're all signed, so you get a signed copy. Um, and that's really the best place. Eventually, they'll be sold, really, in, in, I think, in major bookstores and so on. That is a slower process because of this supply chain thing. Plus, I had most of them delivered to my house. I got like 10 pallets in my garage, you know, because I wanted to be able to be the distributor and sign them and so mm-hmm. on. But they are available from other sources. But GaryKramer.net um, is the website where you can order them, both the 
standard edition and the limited. Um, and that's where people can get them. And, you know, people call me, and I've had some really nice comments on it. You know, perfect strangers saying they enjoy. In fact, I, because of Christmas, I had, just had a guy the other day that said, I got your book. Can you send me 10 more? Because he loved it so much, he just wanted to he give wants it to out give to people it as he gifts. cares about. Yeah. You know, gifts. So. That's awesome, man. Well, Gary, I've enjoyed it so much. Thanks for the conversation. We're going to uh, cook so much food this weekend, and everyone's gone now, so we're just going to uh, eat some leftovers, and then I think we're both going to get some well-deserved rest. There you and then go. you're back to California tomorrow. But, Gary, thank you so much, and thanks for joining us, guys. Hey, Talk my to you pleasure. Had a good time. Appreciate it, bud. All right. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Black Duck Revival podcast. If you'd like to keep up with me and all things Black Duck Revival, please do so by going to the website. It's just blackduckrevival.com or on social media at Black Duck Revival. We will be announcing the 2022-2023 hunt school dates uh, here in the early spring. So look for those in March. There's going to be a limited number of classes this year as Black Duck Revival changes and evolves and as my travel schedule uh, becomes a, a bit more robust, I really want to make sure that I'm offering quality hunts and really special experiences. And I think the best way to do that is just to not do too many of them and be able to put all my effort and intention behind them. So if you're interested in those classes, keep your eyes peeled. Like I said, early spring, probably March sometime. And when they come out, go ahead and sign up for them because I do anticipate them filling up. Also, that same time period, I'll be announcing the uh, dates and availability for something that's near and dear to my heart. These personally guided catfish excursions here in the backwaters and the bayous and the rivers of East Arkansas. So early spring, March, start looking around on social media and the website. If you want to know about those dates before they're released to everybody, you can follow the prompts on the website and uh, sign up for the email list. As always, this podcast is produced by me, Jonathan Wilkins, and Brian Sachs. Thanks so much for listening. I'm having a ball doing this podcast, and I'm so appreciative of some of the nice things and uh, positive messages that people have been sending my way. If you want to help the podcast out, please don't hesitate to subscribe, rate five stars, even write a review. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time.